Hey, Venture, it's great to see you today. I'm going to miss that little theme song uh, that we've been playing for the last six weeks. This is our last week in Journey Home. And I know as I look around this space, I just want to greet the, the proud, the hardy folks who do not leave Hamilton County for fall break. I'm grateful to see you. I've been getting texts all morning from our folks who are probably joining us online right now from some place, like I got a, a beach picture, a sunrise beach picture texted to me this morning. I'm not going to say that I'm jealous, but I'm grateful that you all are with us as well. So this does wrap up a six-week journey together. About half of our church came through what we called a prayer experience. And I know as I look around this space, many of you were a part of that. Perhaps you recognize some of this luggage. The first week of our journey together, we actually called it baggage. And during the prayer experience, we interacted with some of these things. We literally called it baggage, and we claimed it as such. And uh, some of you, you know what I'm talking about. If you came through the prayer experience, you wrote some items down on this baggage, and you carried it and then you dropped it off. You let go of the thing that you wrote down here. Let me just read some of these out loud. Control, pride, anger, selfishness, porn, insecurity, impatience, being short-tempered, control of my future, fear of failure, and being unlovable. Worry about uh, my youngest son's issues and, and his future. Drinking on a regular, regular basis, which keeps me from many things that I could be doing for God, myself, and others. That's just one piece of baggage. Some of you wrote that down, you claimed it, and you let go of it. I could keep going. There are a whole bunch of these. It's been interesting this week just kind of looking through this. I'm not, I'm not trying to pry or snoop, but I kind of get a picture of what God has been doing in our hearts over the last six weeks. Taking pride in things that I do instead of giving God the glory. Grief, worldly hatred, being a bad sister, selfish ambition, body image, my husband's happiness and protecting him from pain, anxiety. Too many stressors at once. And this is interesting, this, the top of this one, somebody's just going along and as they were writing down things, they were checking off other things that other people had written. And I thought that was interesting, just letting go, saying, kick it to the curb. I'm not gonna carry that thing anymore. This week is all about, big fancy word here, abiding. After we have discovered that we are called to be at home with our God, after we've done that kind of good work we just talked about, this word, I pulled this straight from your Bible. I find this in John chapter 15. If you're a Bible student, maybe you recognize that story where the night before Jesus goes to the cross, the night he's betrayed. He's having a conversation with his disciples, and we're going to get into that text here in a few minutes. But he says, you're the vine, or I'm the vine, rather you're the branches. If you remain in me and my love remains in me, you can do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you remain in me, come on, guys, we can change the world. The old translation, the word for remain there, it's the word abide. What does it look like to abide with Christ, to live in his family and feel that harmony and that peace and that seat? Last week we talked about having a seat at the table. How do we stay there? How do we stay pulled up to God's table? 
abiding. This is what we're aiming at today. John chapter 14, if you go back just a few verses before, John 15 talks about abiding. In John chapter 14, if you want to open up with me there today, verse 18, Jesus makes this curious statement. And it's kind of what we've been talking about here for, for six weeks. He says, I will not leave you as, there's our word, orphans. Rather, I'm going to come to you. This is interesting because he's just been telling them, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to go to this cruel Roman cross. I'm going to die on this cross to cover over a multitude of not just your sins, but the whole world's sins. But then he says, I won't leave you as orphans separated from your heavenly father, an orphan child. I'm going to come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. He's talking about the cross he's going to go to tomorrow. But you will, you will see me as you look for me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you're in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Jesus knew. He knew even before he went to that redemptive work on the cross, he knew that we were going to need some help living at home. He knew that we needed his presence to leave those things behind and to operate out of a place of abundance, to abide. That's the word. I came across this story out of Cincinnati that I wanted to share with you. It's this amazing story about a family, a couple, a young couple, they grew in this idea of what it means to be adopted into God's family. And here's the thing, it changed the way that they actually do family. So get comfortable, lean in, listen well, check this out. Before I met Katie, I was really just going through the motions of church. I was going to church every Sunday. I was a, a good Christian, how I should be a Christian. But my relationship with God, I felt like God was almost impersonal, that he just wanted obligation and God just wanted you to fulfill your quota of what you had to, to do. I mean, God has a mandate and he expects you to go to church. He expects you to do good. He expects you to be a good person. Through my experience becoming, you know, a, a more in-depth Christian, I really got to experience God's radical generosity and realize that God wanted good things for me and that he was absolutely generous to me and that it wasn't my duty to do what God wanted, but it was my privilege. It was, you know, what a good relationship is. I really feel like uh, I embraced my Christianity when I was about to get married and when I met my wife's family and seeing how they, they reacted towards uh, their son, Tony, and uh, how they fully embraced him as part of their own family. 
even though he wasn't biologically from their family. I remember in that moment just realizing how much God had given to me that I didn't need and how much extra I had, even though at the time I may have felt poor or felt as if I was going from bill to bill. But that actually genuinely created a good relationship between God and I, where I felt like uh, God didn't need my stuff, but God did want me and wanted my heart to change. God moves me outside of my comfort zone constantly. And, uh, you know, adoption was one of those things where I really had to step out and be challenged, you know, not through the concept of adoption. I said, okay, that's a biblical thing. God says, you know, take care of the widows and orphans. That's pretty, in, in my mind, it almost feels like an obligation. But through that process, I learned something different. Like it wasn't an obligation. It was an act of love that I could have for God. And as we are God's adopted, we want to adopt. We want to build a family through adoption. and. You know, the biological issues, like genetically speaking, you know, that's, that's the least you pass on to your kids is your genetics. So through the process of adoption, I learned how, what it meant to be God's adopted even more so. One of the most vivid memories in my life, weeks of my life, is when I had to decide to actually adopt. We were licensed uh, through Hamilton County to get a kid, and uh, we got a call for a healthy baby girl. Katie and I were both super excited, and we are like, man, this is our first call. We're going to have our first baby. Uh, so I actually left work early to get home so we could call the county back in time and say, hey, you know, hook us up with this baby girl. And uh, the county had said, oh, no, she's already been placed. Through that and praying through that and talking to God through that, we felt like on our hearts that, you know, God had more for us. God thinks, God says we can handle more. We didn't even know what that meant. And then uh, it was four days later on a, a Friday, uh, we got a call for Elijah. He was an unhealthy baby boy. Uh, he was born with lack of oxygen to the brain for 18 minutes, and uh, he was born drug addicted. And uh, Elijah was inevitably terminally ill, and his spinal cord was deteriorating. And we had to decide whether or not we wanted to take on a terminally ill child as our own and have him in our home and experience the loss of our first child. I felt blindsided by that. Uh, you know, I, I look forward to retirement. I look forward to, you know, playing baseball with my kids and, you know, things like that. Not like, you know, you don't choose to have a baby that's going to die or be unhealthy in any way. Through all that, I was praying at a weekend service I was going to, and I felt like God tell me, I'll heal your son, so I'll heal your, heal your boy. And uh, so that, that was it. So we decided that through that we were going to, we wanted to take on Elijah. So uh, there were complications with taking on Elijah uh, because of our age, because of, you know, our medical experience. Um, the county said because of his impending death, they were going to have an investigation. And if he was in our home, we would be investigated and possibly criminally charged for his death. Uh, because 
he's in our home and he's a foster son. Uh, so all those things weighed on me through that decision, uh, but ultimately we decided we wanted him. So on uh, Monday morning, we called the county and he was still available. Nobody else had taken him over the weekend. And uh, so we went to go meet our son later that day. Our biggest thing that we could do for him is pray for him and care for him and love him. And we said, hey, look, if this boy's only going to be here for two weeks to a month, we're going to love him more than any person has ever loved a human. And we're just going to hold him constantly and we're going to take care of him. And he's going to have the best two weeks of his life. I specifically remember praying for him one night. We, we had measured his head the night before and we laid our hands on him. We were praying for his head and uh, his skull actually popped. His skull came apart and, and his head grew six centimeters uh, within one day. So his growth chart hopped on the scale. I still think Elijah's going to be healed more than he is now. I feel like I got a piece of that promise at that time that God had given me that I'll heal your son. From that point on, we realized that God really can do anything. I mean, we saw a miracle happen in Elijah's healing and him, I mean, him being five, that's, that's, that's insane. It really put a different perspective on how we thought about God and his power and his love. He, he can take anything and make it something that he wants in whatever condition that he has. God has made Elijah teach, he taught me how to love. And uh, he taught me what it was like to be that adopted child and to have ownership of my identity. So I feel like God put that on my heart to seek after the kids that are harder to place, that are harder to find a home for. It really changed my perspective when I wanted to adopt in the future that we wanted to focus on medical and special needs. I'm just trying to do what my father's doing. Really, I just try to mimic what I've seen God do for me done for Elijah, done for my wife, completely changed me. After I had Elijah for a little bit, I decided that I wanted a, a back tattoo. It's a picture version of what Romans 8 is. And uh, it's my identity and it's my family's identity about adoption and through adoption. We're God's. We're, we're God's inheritance. We're God's people. We're heirs to the throne. So I really embrace that having adopted and having known all my kids and their experiences. Uh, but Elijah especially really had that identity come home so that I, I knew that that was never going to change in my life. And I always have that identity. So I wanted to put it on me in a way that it was a permanent part of my life. I feel like God fathers us in the same way as I fathered Elijah in that two weeks. Uh, just he does it more constantly, more consistently, more abundantly even than that. 
in the same way, you know, I maybe stepped up and I was a, a you know, the best father ever for two weeks for my boy. Um, God's that way consistently for us. Like we can rely on that even more so than, than anyone else stepping in ever. I mean, nobody's going to treat us or love us the way that God does. Uh, so passionately and consistently more than anything, abundant love. We just applaud that story, what God is doing there. I don't know if anybody else felt a curious leaking around their eyes as you watched that. Man, I want to live at home like that. I want to be a part of a God-sized story like that. Listen, you cannot will yourself to that kind of love. You can't go to a self-help seminar and come out with that kind of godly love. This is about the Spirit of God working in and through you. This is what it looks like, I believe, to live at home. There are a couple things that Greg said there. He said, I'm just trying to do what my Father's doing. He's talking about his Heavenly Father. Really, I just try to mimic what I've seen God do for me because it's completely changed me. This is what it looks like to remain at home, to abide with God. He says nobody's going to treat us or love us the way God does so passionately and consistently more than anything with abundant love. He says, I, I just want to do what I see my father do. Imitation is the highest form of flattery, right? This is part of what it looks like to remain at home. We're able to do stuff that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise because the Spirit of God, if you've asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, he's living in you and living through you. There's this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. I love this. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees. I take a position of humility before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened, I love this word, with power. Strengthened with power, not on your own, but through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. That word, comprehend, hold on to that. With all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the goodness of God. That word, comprehend there. That word, if you were to look at that, passage in other translations, you'd find another word, oftentimes it's used there, it's the word grasp or grapple. Did you catch Greg's shirt in that story? His shirt said out for blood. This wasn't some kind of a, a Christian subculture thing. No, no, no. This guy, he's like a, a grappler. He's a, uh, an MMA fighter. This is part of what he does in his spare time. I don't know if you're familiar with this sport, but basically grappling, it's this idea that you're going to take your opponent and put them into a submission hold, that you're going to literally, you, you hold them and squeeze them tight until they, they tap out. They say, uncle, I'm done. This is a position of humility to tap out. And if you don't, well, you might get your bones broken. This is what he does kind of for fun, right? for fun. This idea of grappling here in the passage, grasp, comprehend. God is saying, listen, hey, who will grapple with my love? Who will humbly abide 
with humility abide in the family that I offer, who will tap out and come into my family. I've been wrestling with humility this whole week or six weeks long. I don't know if you've been tracking along in the journey home. If you've not been doing the family activities at the end of each week, could I encourage you, if you have a family, especially at home, to go back and do these? There's some good stuff there. And each time that I've looked at it, I find a picture of me. My wife Dawn submitted a bunch of pictures to this, and I see like on page 40, there's a skinny kid holding a catfish. That's me as a kid. I look at that and I think, oh my goodness makes me feel humble. I used to look like that. I still look like that. Oh my goodness. And then if you turn over to page 54, there's a picture of a redneck uh, holding a bunch of squirrels by their tail and a 22 rifle in one hand. He's got his brothers around him and a cousin with him and his grandma is standing right there. That's me. I look at that and I think, oh my goodness. Actually, I look at that and I see one grandma up in this corner I see another grandma down in this corner. This is my grandma, Killebrew. I think she's sitting on like a Texas longhorn steer. I think that picture would have been taken in Muskogee, Oklahoma. I look at that and I think, oh my goodness, I come from a long line of rednecks and country bumpkins. There's some humility here. Then I turn to the back page. There's a picture of this. Uh, I'm on page uh, 88. This will be your family challenge this week. Picture of me and Dawn and some of our college friends down here. Right next to it is a picture of my wife Dawn when she was a little girl. And she's dressed as a clown. If you know me, you know that freaks me out just looking at that picture. Humility, this is the posture that we're supposed to come to the Father. And God's saying, who will humbly come into the power that God offers? If you're taking notes today, I hope you are. I want to encourage you to write down three ways that you can remain at home, three ways to abide. If you're taking notes, here's the first one, how to remain at home. First of all, dwell with the Holy Spirit. Live with, remain in, abide with the Holy Spirit. I received the Holy Spirit at my baptism when I was a sophomore in high school. But here's the thing. I think I've received more of the Holy Spirit at other moments in my life as well. Maybe my ordination service. Maybe the moment I walked across the stage, Bible college. Maybe the decision went on and I first made a decision to adopt some kids. Each time I've taken a step deeper into obedience with my God, I feel, I don't know if it's theologically correct to say this. It's not maybe that I've received more of the Holy Spirit, but maybe that I've been more open to the Holy Spirit's influence in my life that I've recognized the Holy Spirit working in me and through me, and this is part of what I believe it is, what it means to remain at home. It's this word we're looking at, abiding. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 puts it this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you read through the Bible sometimes, you think, oh my goodness, that sounds sexist. Well, it's because the context that the Bible was written in was sexist. But this is making a strong point here. In a sexist culture, first century, basically the text is saying everyone, male, female, slave, free, we all get equal share of the inheritance. We're all treated in that context as sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons full share of the inheritance by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He's saying, so act like it. There's a moment in time when the Spirit empowers us to stay at home. The Holy Spirit, this is how I would put it, domesticates us. I don't mean by that he makes us a sissy. He takes away our zest for adventure to where you trade in your sports car for a minivan. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about he brings us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit domesticates us, makes us comfortable living at home. The Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we're, our, our nature is to run around as orphan children. It's, in that text, it's described as children of wrath. But the Holy Spirit says, now come home, pull up a, se a seat at the table, make yourself at home in you and through you. And we have Jesus, right? Jesus, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is described in the Bible as the firstborn of all creation. He is the older brother. We have a father in heaven. We have Jesus. And here's the deal. We're siblings. We get to be siblings in his family. We're family members. If you've asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, if the Holy Spirit is living in you and through you, you are my sister. You are my brother. I don't mean like my brother or like my sister. You are. This is why if I travel the world and I bump into somebody who is also a sibling in God's family, we might have different cultural experience, different cultural even baggage. But because we have a seat at the table, God's table together, oftentimes that person just feels familial to me. Because we're sisters, we're brothers. We have a unique bond. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says it this way. As obedient children, but God's children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. This brings us to our second way to remain at home, is to obey God's word. Did you catch that in the verse we just read? There's a four-letter word there. We talk about four-letter words with our kids. We talk about four-letter words that are not allowed to be on the TV, on broadcast television. There's a four-letter word there in that passage that we just read, obey, O-B-E-Y. It's four letters. And this is a word in our culture. We don't really want to do this. Call it our pioneer, pull ourselves up by our own bootstrap, American spirit. I don't know what it is, but we're not wired to obey so much. We have to learn this. We have to lean into this discipline. We're called to obey God's word. By the way, um, Greg and Katie are drawn to obey the video we just watched because of the fullness that they feel God doing in them and through them, his Holy Spirit at work in their lives. There's probably some generational approaches to the way we view this baggage. There's probably some generational approaches and some of the things that we're dealing with that we set down. For example, uh, as I'm reading through these, if you grew up, uh, let's say you're 60 or older, somewhere in that era, you probably were raised by a World War II father. And you get this whole discipline thing. You might uh, never have heard your dad say, I love you. But you knew your dad, your earthly father, as an authority. You get that because your dad modeled authority. Maybe, though, you never saw your dad as a lover. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And I just wonder, as you wrote some of those things down, as you moved some of that baggage this past week in the prayer experience, if that has shaped you. Now, let's say you're 30 or younger. You probably grew up in a home that's exactly the opposite. 
you grew up in my generation as your parent or the next generation as your parent. I mean, your whole experience, I love you. Well, you say, well, I heard that all the time, right? You grew up, that's, there's a reason for that. You grew up in a child-centered home. The family schedule revolved around you. We've heard of helicopter parents. I, I listened to a podcast this past week where a husband and wife, they're my age, are talking about t- dropping their son, their 15-year-old son, off in the woods to go bear hunting with a bow and arrow. And they just dropped him off in public land and left him for three days. And like, he's out doing a thing. He had some story about an encounter with a skunk. He killed a bear with a bow and arrow. And I'm just thinking to myself, I don't know many of my peers, many parents my age that would drop their 15-year-old sin off and just say, go ahead and go and do this. That's not how we parent so much today. And it's not normal for the generation that I've raised and the generation that some of us have raised in. We hear, I love you all the time, but we maybe didn't hear, shut your mouth and stop back-talking me, right? Maybe we didn't hear that as much. And so we get the whole loving thing of God, but we don't get the discipline side of God. And I just wonder, I wonder how much that has shaped some of the baggage that we're walking around with today. It's this idea of authority versus loving. And either extreme will get us an outage of who our Father is. After we join our Father, after we join the family, we want to please our Father. And we understand that there's consequences if we don't. There's this passage in John chapter 14 we're studying. He had said the night he was betrayed, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, right? I will come to you. And then he goes on, listen to this. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Very literal translation there. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will obey me. Not just the love of God, but the authority of God as well. And my Father will love him. Comes out of obedience there, right? And we will come to him and make our home with him. We see home when we get authority and love lined up. Obedience. The Spirit enables us to love God and to obey him. And then the longer we live at home, the more instinctive it is to obey. When I obey, I remain at home. Let me illustrate this. I need a cone of light. So imagine this is uh, living at home over in this space. And I'm in the light over here. Some of those things that we just read at the beginning of the message and I walked over there. Well, those are over there in the dark, right? Well, God says you can do anything you want over in here. I mean, you can hang out over here. You can do what you want, twiddle your thumbs. You can hang out over here. You can do what. But if you go over here, it's not that I just left God's love. I mean, he loves me. He chases me if I'm over here and I'm trying to pick that baggage back up. But over here, this is, he says, I want you to abide I want you to live here. I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want over here. You can even stand on your head and hang out over here if you want to do that. I'm going to pay for that one in the morning with my neck. You can do whatever you want. And here's the thing. I, I think even we can bring the lights back on. I think that a lot of times we think, well, does God have like rules around what I can do over here in the lights? I mean, when I obey, right, I'm safe over there. I'm tempted to go back to the vomit pile and pick some of that stuff up. 
God doesn't care, I think, about a lot of the details of what we do. Like, for example, my, my wife, I was uh, driving her minivan the other day. And by the way, every time I drive Dawn's van, I'm like, hey, how long has it been doing this thing? She says, well, it's been doing that for a month or so. Well, I think we probably, so I'm looking at it. I think I need to get new tires on the front end of the minivan. I hate buying tires. There's nothing. It feels like a worthless investment to buy new tires. There's nothing fun about that. And I, and I, I can buy tires and I can buy, you know, the 80,000 mile tires or the 70,000 mile tires. I don't think God cares. I think I could put retreads on the front of that thing. He doesn't care. But there are some things that God, he wants me to live over in that light. And he doesn't want me to step outside of that. If you're ever reading through scripture and you think, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing that? Here's the thing. I could give you some examples of what those things are. But I'm going to leave it up to the Holy Spirit. I suspect right now he's prompting you with what you should be doing, with what you shouldn't be doing, to obey him. If you're reading through scripture and you read something in the Bible and you say, well, Jesus would approve of that. What Greg and Katie tell in that story. Yeah, I want to be doing something like that. Well, what should you do? Well, you should do it. If you read it in scripture and you're like, yeah, Jesus would want me to be doing that. Well, that's, that's what you do. It. But if, if you're reading through scripture and you're like, that over there, I don't think he wants me to be doing this. The Holy Spirit prompts you that way. Well, don't do that. Do it. Don't do that. Let's go ahead and put it up there. Yeah, it is what you should be doing. That is what you shouldn't be doing. And I'll just let the Holy Spirit prompt you in that right now. So right now, what is it that your heavenly father wants you to do? And what is it that he wants you to stop doing? Until you get this straight, there will always be a cap on your life. Father, you're not just my provider, you're my authority as well. I talked last week about heavenly conversations with Moses. I fried some bacon on the stage. And I think we've got this idea that, oh my goodness, if we were to go back in time, those people were really spiritual, and today we don't get to be like that. I don't think that's true. I was reading a book years ago. This is by uh, Not a Fan, uh, by Kyle Eidelman, and he says this. Sometimes I hear people talk about the different men and women of the Old Testament, and there's a hint of jealousy. They may say it or just insinuate it, but here's what they communicate. What would it have been like to hear God's voice and see him move in such powerful ways? I bet you've thought this before if you study Scripture. I wish it was the same for us as it was for those whose stories we read about in Scripture. When I get to heaven, I can't wait to see and ask David, Elijah, or Moses. I talked about Moses last week. What, what it was like. But I think it would be just the opposite in heaven. Before we can ask David what it was like to slay a giant to win the battles, he'll say, well, tell me what it was like on earth to have the Holy Spirit inside of you, giving you strength when you're weak. We might say to Elijah, what was it like to call down fire from heaven before the prophets of Baal and to raise the boy from the dead? And I think Elijah might say, yeah, he actually ended up dying again. You tell me what it was like to have God living inside of you, the Holy Spirit what was it like to live life on earth with the Holy Spirit giving you joy when you're depressed or giving you the power to overcome that sin in your life? We might say to Moses, what was it like to follow the cloud by day and the fire by night? What was it like to meet with God on the mountain? And Moses might say, I had to climb that mountain to meet with God. You tell me what it was like to have him dwell in you every day. What was it like to have the Holy Spirit giving you directions when you didn't know what to do or where to go? 
Last night, I enjoyed deer hunting. I was 25 feet up in the sky in a deer stand. And I was looking uh, to the east, and I was hyper-focusing on a moon. Don't hyper-focus on an interesting moonrise and miss a gorgeous sunset behind you. This is what I was doing. I don't know if you know this, but if you look at a fixed object closer to you and you look through like a leaf or a branch and you're looking up at the moon, you can literally watch it rise. And I was doing that and I was watching that and I was thinking, oh my goodness, that's so interesting. I wonder if maybe Newton did that or maybe Galileo did that. I was just getting ready to Google that fact and I turn around and I see this gorgeous sunset behind me. I do this sometimes with Scripture. I'll hyper-focus on details in God's Word. Like when I was a kid, I was in this thing called Bible Bowl. And I do at one point how many once-used words and twice-used words are in the book of Genesis. Uh, oh, my goodness, I wrestle with things like, like original Greek words and what they meant in their context. I, the book of Philippians has, it's either 16 or 18 times the word rejoice is used. I can't remember right now, but I guarantee you before I go to sleep tonight, I'll know that because I'll have looked it up. This is just kind of how my brain works. But I can hyper-focus on some of those details and miss the gorgeous sunrise or sunset behind me. The Holy Spirit I get to live with the Holy Spirit in my life today. And so to you, don't hyper-focus on the details even that you find in Scripture and miss the beauty of what a life together abiding with Christ can look like. Third principle, dwell with the Spirit. We talked about that. Obey his word. Last way to remain at home, reproduce the family business reproduce the family business. Jesus, we talked about this a few weeks ago when he was 12 years old. He got separated from his earthly parents and they found him at the temple. He was teaching and he said, hey, didn't you know that I would be about my family's business? Didn't you know I would be about the father's business? Why didn't you look for me here? Our job is to reproduce, to grow the family business. Well, what is the family business? Here how we'll here's how we'll define it. Anything that God wants to happen in the world. Anything the Father is calling to happen here, this is the family business, and you and I were members of the family. We're here today because 2,000 years ago, people received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicted a bunch of people. We talked about uh, uh, John chapter 14 and John chapter 15, and then a few months later, there's the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit shows up. People are convicted as they're pulled into the family of God, and they start getting on ships. And you read the rest of the book of Acts, and people spread the gospel, the good news, all over the known world of its day. I told a story a few weeks ago about the story of the prodigal son that had been picked up in Buddhism a couple hundred years later. Why? Well, because Christian people were getting on ships and they were going to the known world of the day and they were telling the gospel story, the good news of Jesus. They were expanding the family business. And that story got picked up and it got changed a little bit. But it got told. Even a couple hundred years later, we read that in a text. We're here today because people expanded the family business. I want to do that. I want to call you to do that today. If you sometime this week were to go to venturechristian.church slash journey home. 
venturechristian.church slash journey home. You're going to find there that there's a bunch of next steps, some action steps for you. You heard Daniel talk about this just a bit ago, that there's a table tent that we want you to walk out of the service today, and we want everybody, one per family, to pick these up, take it home. We talked about the place at the table last week. I want you to put this on your table, your family table this week, and maybe over lunch today or dinner tonight. I want you to circle up the family and talk about, oh, how are we going to share home? And if you hit our website, slash journey home, you're going to find and scroll down to the bottom of the page, you're going to scroll past the skinny kid holding up a catfish, and you're going to come down to a space that, sh- that says sharing home. It's meant to match this. And you can read up more of what each of these action steps are all about, but this is about sharing the family business. This is what we're getting ready to do for the next few weeks in the life of our church. How do we take what we've done and apply it and put it into action? Like, for example, this is what it says. When we're home, God's spirit touches ours. So let's share a life-giving touch of home with others. And the top one says trunk or treat. We're getting ready to do that. Our children's ministry is getting ready to provide an experience out here on our lawn, our backyard. Who could you invite to come play in our backyard so that maybe one of these days they'll feel comfortable to come into the living room? And there's a space right there. You talk about it as a family, and you're going to write in, we will invite so-and-so to join us. Just write their name in there. Maybe pray for them, and just simply walk across the street or walk across the cubicle, the office space, whatever, and invite them, that young family, to come and see just a simple, tangible way of showing God's love. Trunk or Treat's coming up. The neighborhood. This is an opportunity. We have a group of volunteers ready to meet the physical needs of homeowners by assisting with yard work and light maintenance projects around the house. I love this ministry. I love what they're doing. We want to take it from just inside our church and make sure we're pushing it outside the walls of the church. So is there a single mom or is there an elderly person that could catch a glimpse of God's kingdom through the help of the neighborhood ministry here? If so, you can fill out a request on the outreach page of our website. You can find it on that link I just shared with you. And you could also uh, help in this by volunteering maybe uh, to uh, serve on one of those teams. Let us know if you're willing to swing a hammer for Jesus. Or maybe as well by donating a a, a used tool. We're going to have a tool drive beginning next week. We'll find uh, those options and opportunities available next week. But you could donate a used tool toward that. Who do you know? Every once in a while, I'm on these um, Facebook community groups. There's one called Noblesville Chatter. And usually it's, um, it's a whole lot of drama. But every once in a while, somebody will say, hey, I've got a need. I need somebody to clean out a gutter. I have an issue with a plumbing leak. I don't know. They'll put up a need. And and I think, how cool would it be if we had eyes to see and we reached out to that person and said, how can we, the body of Christ, how can we serve you? I think the neighborhood would be a great opportunity to do that. Harvest Thanksgiving. This is something we do every week. So you're going to write on here. We're going to have eyes to see maybe the person in our neighborhood. And we're going to write down their name and pray for them. Harvest Thanksgiving. We're going to fill X number of bags for families in our community. And we'll start talking about that in the next several weeks. We want to bless some people with Thanksgiving food. And that that drive begins next week. How many bags do you want to fill and be a part of that? Operation Christmas Child. This is an opportunity to take not just what we're doing here, 
but literally globally. It's an opportunity to pack a box and to send it overseas. You're going to be hearing more of these conversations in the next few weeks as we give you those opportunities. But maybe you're going to pick up a box and you're going to take that and you're going to fill it and we're going to bless somebody, even literally on the other side of the world with that. How do you take what we have and not just remain at home, but share home? This is the challenge. This is the action step. Would you stand up with me right now? What we want to do is we want to commit this moment. We want to worship our God in response. There's a seat at the table. He wants us to pull up a seat at his table, but he wants us not just to stay there, but he wants us to share home with everybody. So let him do a work in your heart right now as we continue our worship to our God.